none of this is proprietary. Like I said, the, these places are universally appreciated. You come back from Europe and look at your picture roll and there's there'll be photos of you, of your gang in front of a market, but you know, you're not taking pictures in front of your HEB. <laughs> you know what I mean? So there's, there's this, there, there's sort of this universal appreciation of these kind of places and you just copy those, those patterns and forms and um, it's not like we're making it up. You know, these things have been sorted out years ago. Hey guys, welcome back to the Fort Podcast. My name is Chris Powers and I wanna thank you for joining me today. This show is an open-ended discussion and journey covering real estate, business, entrepreneurship, and investing. I would love to hear from you by tweeting me at Fort Worth Chris on Twitter. And if you've enjoyed this show, I would be super grateful if you would follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever platform you listen to. And if on Apple, it would mean a lot if you'd leave a rating and review. Last but not least, you can find all these episodes on YouTube. Thank you so much again for joining me and enjoy the show. And this episode is brought to you by Fort Capital. If you're a broker or anybody out there that knows of a class B industrial building for sale, we want to hear from you. Our criteria is that we hope that it's between 10 and $75 million in total purchase price. Fort Capital offers industry-leading incentives, including an additional bonus, the ability to co-invest, a piece of the upside, and exclusive partner trips. Last year, we went to Lajitas and we went to Las Vegas, and it was a lot of fun, and we'd love to see you there this year. Join Fort Capital's deal incentive program today to be eligible for these incentives and more by going to www.fortcapitallp.com backslash connect. Eric, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Thanks for having me. This is fantastic. You know, we were just talking. I think the internet's been broken a couple times. Maybe Kim Kardashian let a nip slip once. And then <laughs> when I announced that you were going to be on the podcast, it was probably the second time it broke. I'm excited about this. And uh, I know the listeners are too. So this will be fun. I'll tell you, this is like being on the uh, the Tonight Show of real estate. <laughs> so I'm, I'm, I'm excited. Thanks for having me. I'm a huge fan. I've listened to, I think, most of these. And you've done a, if you go back to the beginning and listen, it's it's been great to see how you've gotten it more and more dialed in as it's as it's progressed. So bravo, it's, you've done a great job. I appreciate that. I actually listened to one the other day from like the first five I did and was like, oh my gosh. Did you think your voice sounded funny? Oh, yeah. They, they say, they're like, oh, you find your voice, you know, the more of these you do. And it, it's so true. Probably a year into it, it kind of clicked. But yeah, it's fun. And that's why I would never have a guest like you on until my voice was ready. <laughs> now you feel it. Now you feel it. Now I feel it. We're going to cover a lot today, but let's kind of just start with how you got into real estate and kind of how you describe what you do. You're, you're, the first line on your website says, we help improve neighborhoods by building things like independent coffee shops, garden courtyards, and places to enjoy a cold beer. <laughs> how, how did we get to that place? That's a, that's a great question. I think, you know, the, the dots connect when you look backwards. They don't, uh, it's always a little foggier looking forward. So, you know, the short answer is we're a value add real estate investor. And then the long answer, 
for uh, people that are <laughs> that are killing time, like you seem to be doing right now, uh, <laughs> is imagine you know you've got some uh, you're wearing your flip flops and you head over into a courtyard somewhere and there's a old brick pavers and a you know you're sitting at a at a wooden table and maybe there's some like a hand painted um, you know uh, Spanish tile fountain gurgling and and someone brings you out a you know cold beer and your your bride has a sparkling rosé and some friends come over and say hello and then some pizzas come out of an italian oven and then you look across and you and maybe there's like a uh there's a coffee shop with a fire pit or two in front of it and then there's a sushi joint next to that that's a tiny little place with an italian or with a Japanese guy that's uh, a complete pro, and then, and then across the grass you can see the market that you go to, and maybe there's a dive bar around the corner where you go once a year and hoot and holler and smoke cigarettes and slap the table, <laughs> and then, <laughs> and uh, you know above it there's some stairs that lead up to office space that are covered in ivy. So and you look through the you know, there's maybe an arch and you can kind of see through to a cool cocktail bar. That place is woefully non-existent in America. And the few instances where it exists is fantastic and appealing in some way to everyone. And then the thing that we found is those places are creatable. And if you have that, then the, then the sort of game changes, the math changes, the outlook changes. And because that's the kind of place that, you know, were that to exist, you know, somebody would want to live pretty close to it and somebody want to have their office pretty close to it. Somebody might want to have a groovy hotel next to it. So anyway, the, we've sort of gotten into, found our way through a circuitous route of being in a place of, man, if you can, if you can do that, those places have a halo effect that changes the value of everything around it. Everybody kind of wins. And in those rare instances, when you can create something like that, you've really got a, you know, you got a tiger by the tail. So that's the long answer of what we do. <laughs> and, uh, and then we can go into how, how that came to be, but. I'm not brown nosing, but there's probably been one other time in 190 episodes that I wanted to just take the headphones off fly to whatever you just described and go hang out. <laughs> that's awesome. And now the magic question, okay, that's all sounds great. How do you actually do it? And so I would start by going, well, well the, the, the overarching theme of the next hour will be, will be how, how we get this done. Let's start with like, how do you know it's the right spot to start acquiring? What, what matters? The thing I described is sort of universally appealing to humans <laughs> and you kind of go to you go to europe you go to south america you go to asia that the, they're covered up with places like that and you know in a different form or fashion we've sort of because of the financial constructs of how the world works we've sort of recreated it in america with a you know if you put dollar tree walgreens and olive garden together <laughs> that's kind of our version of that of that environment. And, and over time, it sort of falls flat. So these places that are completely common elsewhere become very rare here because they're, for a lot of reasons, hard to hard to pull off. 
And so when they do, they stand out even more. So this is like a, it's appealing to about anyone. If you asked me this five years ago, I would have said, you know, you've got to stick with where the, stick with where the income is, stick with where the education is, go only deal with, you know, high income areas. And I'm changing my opinion that it takes a different form and fashion, but it works in any neighborhood. The trick is construction costs are sort of the same and, you know, whether it's a expensive area or, or inexpensive area. So, so you've got a basic threshold that you've got to get over in terms of, you know, making some modest financial sense of it. But we've had experience in working in, you know, from, from in town to suburban to, you know, all kinds of areas. So I think the trick is it's easier to do where you can find cheap land in a very rich area. But (laughs) as we all know, that's hard to find. (laughs) Can it be done in your opinion to get that true kind of nostalgic feeling with new development, or is it typically done better when you're redeveloping kind of old buildings? I think it works both. It works in both ways. And I think in, you know, reworking an existing building obviously has benefits. Combining old buildings with new buildings is oftentimes the best. In a, I'll call it a greenfield scenario, there's a lot of, you know, patterns that work with how these kind of buildings are built, but a lot of it starts with the land. And so a reason a lot of these places kind of seem to end up feeling a little fakey is they started with a bulldozer that, you know, just sort of scraped everything and graded everything flat. And instead of if you can, you know, there's usually always something on the land to begin with that's worth working with. So, you know, maybe there's a great old tree or there's a hill, uh, you know, a little taper in the hill or a creek that runs through it or some kind of a swale. And so by keeping some of these physical attributes in place, it makes it feel more authentic and and sort of connected to the place that it is, as opposed to something that came out of a, you know, architect's bag of tricks, if that makes sense. Yeah. Early on, like, like a chicken and an egg problem. And maybe it's changed because, you know, y'all have a recipe for success and you've kind of have the playbook, but when you're assembling, it's like, okay, you want to get in, you kind of want to buy enough to, to have something to work on not really tip anybody off so that you can buy at a price where you can actually make these projects work. At the same time, maybe for folks that haven't done it, you don't want to buy too much because if it doesn't work, you've kind of... So how do you think about that chicken and the egg problem when you're going in? Do you try and get everything bought originally? Or do you say, look, we'll start with kind of like inning one. And if this works, we're okay continuing to pay up as the neighborhood improves. Like, how do you think about that whole concept? Well, you, I loved what you wrote, by the way, the, the, your second, your, your letter you sent out the other day was terrific 2022 letter, but the idea of, you know, paying the new price. Yeah. <laughs> so by way of example, one of our projects, we bought a, it was a great, great little corner of Atlanta that was a little dingy and worn around the edges and overlooked. And in 2000, I'm terrible with dates, but I think it was 2005. We bought a uh, 8,000 square foot funky little building. 
mm-hmm. that was underparked and had access problems just because it was a, you know, we really liked the area and thought we could get a, get a toehold and thinking this, this building's fine. The rents are low. We'll be able to, you know, fix it up over time, improve the, the, uh, we bought it from a, bought it from an owner occupier and he wanted to downsize. So anyway, since then, because of that toehold, we've purchased another 15 buildings, you know, in the immediate area, you know, adjacent across the street next to around some of that came in chunks and, you know, a bunch of different transactions. And we recently nearby bought with partners two and a half acres to for a ground up residential development. And we're working on another two acre site nearby. Would you have loved to have have those at 2005 prices? Yes. <laughs> but also, you know, that things evolve, they develop, you don't know what you would have been a little bit idiotic to do that in 2005. You know, you wouldn't have known that these things would have come together and what's there now uh, wouldn't have happened. So the idea is that over time, as the, if you get this, I like to talk about the butterfly effect, you know, the idea of a butterfly flaps its wings in Singapore, you end up with a hurricane in Houston or whatever. Uh, (laughs) Things happen um, over time and sort of, can compound geometrically. So if you can, the idea that you can start that, get that thing going, in effect, you can rig the game. And so then you've got good things that start snowballing and you don't have to have all of it. You know, some of this stuff, when you get multiple participants, it's even better because you get somebody else coming in with, with their perspective and, and new money and it all builds on itself together. So then you're looking for, opportunities within that zone to to even further increase the pie if that makes sense. When you're doing that, do you want other people to come in and bring their capital and improve? Is it a mix? Every time I've done an assemblage, I've kind of felt this unwritten rule that if other folks know you're assembling, you kind of out of respect, kind of let them continue taking the lead. But when I hear that you like this specific area over 16 years, how do you think about competition? Is it healthy or are there days where you're like, man, I, I, nobody should touch that. I'm not ready to buy it yet, but they're going to screw it up if, you know, somebody else buys <laughs> it. When you can get the thing going right and then you recruit people that are really good at what they do and they've got a, they've got a niche. So there's a, we've got another project where we're involved in, where we, help create some, you know, retail storefronts and adjacent to that behind that in what sort of a, you know, vacant had been a vacant parking lot for 50 years. We were able to recruit one of just one of the premier townhome developers, somebody that's got just an impeccable eye for detail and can build townhome communities really extraordinary in what they're able to do and something that that's their business. They're really good at it. They know how to do it. They know how to market it. The product is fantastic. 
you know, imagine somebody that can build and sell a one bedroom townhome, you know, just really funky stuff like that. And to be able to partner with them and have them build next to you makes what you've done better and vice versa. So they would tell you that the reason that they've had such success in this project is because of what we've done. And then we would argue that part of the reason some of our merchants are so successful is what they've done. When you're recreating a neighborhood, another chicken and egg problem, do you get the, have to get the commercial right first so that the residential will come? Or is the argument that you need some residential there so that there's bodies to feed the commercial? Or is it, it's not that black and white? You know, it, to, to have a viable, you know, commercial area, you need, depending on the scale of it, but you need thousands of people at a minimum. And so to, you know, if you're doing anything of scale, so it'd be rare that somebody would build enough residential to sort of self-support place, you know, Bedford Stuyvesant, some of the, some of those areas in New York, you know, those, those folks might get away with it. But so you're looking at a much larger area generally, you know, in the Sun Belt with the sort of density of places, you, you, you know, you might be looking at a two or three mile radius in most cases as to what could support what you're doing. And then if you do it right, you're able to, if you make something super groovy, you're able to draw, you know, people from across town or, or whatever. So we focus on, to answer your question, on getting it right at a small scale, at a micro scale, you know, maybe getting 10,000 square feet or 20,000 square feet, getting that really right. And then as that starts to take shape, building on that, incrementally based on what seems to seems to be working and sort of having the thing evolve with its own character difficult to do easy to say well kind of piggyback off that and then i want to talk about kind of financing this so you are where you are now in your career you have a track record i'm sure a lot of folks would throw money at you to get into your deals you don't have to say that. I'll say that for you. <laughs> but, you know, I think one of the, the, the magical things about this, and I, and I had a, a gentleman the other day on the podcast that's redoing the town of Opelika, Alabama, a guy named John Marsh with Marsh Collective. And we just talked about this concept of, and, and you said it right out the gate, you have to have capital that can think outside of the five-year performa that can think outside of the, I need a 20 IRR in five years or this project doesn't work. How do you finance these as you continue to go? Is it individual partnerships? Is it a fund? Is it a trust me? We'll just kind of keep raising as we go and we'll figure it out. Like, you know, looking back from 2005 to where you are today on that project, maybe we take this project as the, the example. How does something like this really get financed? And then answer it from how you did it, but how you might tell somebody that's just getting started or you know, maybe he's going to leave a company and go off. Like, how should they think about it? You know, real estate projects take capital. <laughs> and so you've got to have a home for it that is, you know, as compelling or more compelling than the, than the alternatives. So we're not in the altruism business. And so these need to make sense. And what we found is they make can make 
a lot of sense and more sense than other things. So in this case, you know, I, I told you we started with one small building and it was, um, you know, I, I can't remember. Let's just say it was a million and a half dollar building on a price per square foot basis. It was cheap to the, now I'm thinking about it's maybe $180 a square foot kind of a building, which was at that time and place, you know, a pretty attractive price for this part of Atlanta. And so the idea was that, hey, if we can get this thing leased, we got to, we're going to go out and, you know, to get real specific, I think we put a 25 year self amortizing loan, 25 year term, 25 year loan on the building. Uh, we thought we were locking in a great rate. So you can imagine how that has felt <laughs> over the years. And, and we've got another, whatever, 10 years to go on it. But, you know, rents have probably doubled two and a half X, um, a lot of that sort of market. But that doing that and having a little bit of success with that building led to, you know, you, you kind of, and you I'm sure you've experienced this, but you make one investment and you start paying attention to that area. It's like, you know, you get a, you get a new car and, and then that's all you see on the streets for a while. So, so because we were, we were active there, um, a couple of buildings across the street came up and this was, um, so we paid, you know, 2005 kind of pricing as well. The next move came in 2008 and everything was, you know, had gone to hell. The uh, bank was foreclosing, but they didn't want it. The uh, fellow that had it was a friend and he wanted out. He had guarantees. The bank didn't want it on its books. And I remember us having conversations with the lender saying, please, I will lose my job if you guys don't close on this. <laughs> you know, it was, it was that sort of an environment. So the pricing on that on a dollar cost average basis was, was, um, was much better. And then I think the next couple of chunks came in, you know, 2014, 15. So <clears throat> the, the size of the additional properties increased. So we added new folks and created new standalone partnerships for each of these things. So if you liked it, you could come into this. We did this all with individuals that we've had experience with and a, and a history with. And then um, we had a series of individual partnerships owning these things. And so in that, in, in this case, just one way to think about doing it is then we made each of the things had, had had improvements done to them that radically improved the value of them on a standalone basis. So then we went out basically and got appraisals and said, Hey, here's what these things are worth. Let's put them all into a single basket and have the leverage of owning this all under one umbrella. And if you're an investor, here's the, here's the new um, valuation. And if you like it, great. If you don't, we can, you know, offer a chance to step out at the new valuation. And so everybody was, complete alignment of interest. Everybody was excited about that because it was all moving in a, <laughs> in a direction going up and to the right. So, so it, uh, that worked. And so now we're left with a, you know, a single entity 
because we've now got, you know, extremely low leverage on that, we're able to move fast to acquire other things as they may come up, but we don't have to do anything. Um, and so we'll encourage other people to take steps to help improve the neighborhood. So anyway, maybe too technical of an answer, but that's, that's one way to do it is just sort of starting out small, seeing how it goes, doing individual partnerships as you go. We're involved in another one where there was an ability, you know, sort of a unique and opportunistic thing that came up where we were able to purchase a very large piece of urban land without partners, just because the pricing worked that we could look under the sofa cushions ourselves and come up with the money. Um, and so that's given us, you know, more flexibility. And then we've got another one where it's a, the idea of a, of a covered land play, as they say, and um, we've been uh, able to, you know, generate revenue off of that and then, and then improve buildings as they, as leases rolled over. Is there anything I, this just kind of came to mind and obviously, you know, to do anything great and kind of have that buffer pricing in these early stages matter. Is there anything you look at and go, you know, nobody wishes for a downturn and, and they're not, you know, great things overall, but they do create opportunities. Is there anything you see often that you're like, I love that. And there will come a day where I can buy that. But, you know, it seems like a lot of these great revitalizations happen when people are able to get in early at a time when there's opportunity. And then like what we're experiencing now in 2021 or 2022, if you're just going into an area right now where prices are, you know, they're fully baked, you just don't have a lot of wiggle room to mess up and make those mistakes. And, you know, the last thing, especially when you're paying big, when you, when you, when you're paying cheap, you have that 16 years. I mean, I commend you for doing this over 16 years, most people can't wait for their Twitter feed to upload for five seconds. <laughs> so, you know, the, the question is just like, how many more times, how many things do you drive around and see? And you're like, there will come a time and a place where that, that one makes sense. It's just not now. A couple thoughts on that. This type of property. So, you know, I've, I've had the, the, curse or fortune of being able to see properties over a long period of time in a lot of markets. And my experience has been this, you know, this urban infill type commercial property doesn't seem to go on sale. And there are times when it's, you know, maybe, <laughs> maybe what seems like fairly priced to, to overpriced, <laughs> it doesn't seem to go on a discount. So I think part of that kind of forced us to look at things differently and, and maybe because of that led us to this point. So the, you know, our, as I said, our, our business has been value add investing. So the typical, like everyone else that's doing that is you get, so the, you know, the value is the ultimate value is Z you spend X to buy it. You add Y in improvements and to the extent that that's less than z you've made money so when when the x is when the x price is too high you kind of got to stand around with your hands in your pockets right <laughs> and so what we found is that by taking the approach that we've had there are instances where 
the the Z is not just Z, but it's maybe follow follow my uh, rudimentary and probably wrong mathematical <laughs> analogies. But Z Z is like Z squared. So if you think it's X plus Y to the extent that that's less than Z squared, that's where there's a lot of juice. So in in real world, if you take and you build the the little environment that we described at the outset, all the property around it increased in value and, you know, substantially. <laughs> and depending on the, the intensity of the, of the vibe that you're able to create on the, the central component. So, you know, in, in a typical, you know, let's say you're a value-add uh, multifamily investor, you know, the typical program is you buy something for X and then you spend, you know, whatever, five grand a unit fixing it up. And then you're able to get another, whatever, $600 in rent or whatever that, whatever that math is. And, but you, you're, you're going into every unit and you're spending that money and you're putting in the backsplash and the new countertop and, and, and then doing half of them and convincing the next guy that he can do the rest of them <laughs> and make the money. And then, but you know, each each unit has to get fixed up by somebody, theoretically. In this case, say that little environment that we talked about from the outset was sitting, you know, in between a thousand apartment units. The value, the rent of each one of those goes up without ever, you've never even touched the inside of the space, right? The office building that's next door, if it you know, if, if the if the value of that goes up three dollars a square foot on a three hundred thousand square foot building or something like that, so there's this. If the uh, housing, you know, if there's uh, you know a thousand single family homes that increase by a hundred grand in the neighborhood, that sort of ripple effect and halo effect is out there. So then the trick is, how do you how do you capitalize on that? How do you participate in that? So, so anyway, that's, that's been the, in a, in an environment where X plus Y is not less than Z. We've been looking at ways to change. What is, what is Z? <laughs> yeah. All right. We're going to get into the, a fun topic. It, these are all, I, I, you know, I might call this episode chicken and the egg. Okay. We've bought the real estate, but now when I think of how you described that first minute when we were talking and you just told that, you know, you you made me go to this spot that that is so unique. All right, you anybody can buy a building, but now you got to get it filled up and all those components have to work and that feeling has to start manifesting itself. How do you do that? And we're, I got a series of questions, so we can start at it from any angle you want to start. But that is, to me, a lot of the magic. Obviously, you've done well. How do you do this? How do you get people to start showing up? So there's a lot of different things that, that have to be involved. So you've got to figure out a way. You don't know what's going to happen. You know, that's that's the general rule of real estate. So... You need to find instances where a wide range of outcomes are possible. So, you know, it's it's being able to go into something and say a lot of the things that we do is there's always this underlying theme of, well, we can always rent it for this. We can always sell it for that. You know, if everything goes to shit, we can get out of the thing by doing this or that. There's sort of this baseline 
safety hatch that you can ejection seat that you can do. So one of the one of the projects where we first started to really see how this was possible, we bought in 2009 and we our office at the time we were renting an office from one of the you know savvy probably savviest real estate people i know kind of one of the local warlords in uh atlanta and his office was there too and this was when you actually went to physically went to closings and so we're i'm riding down the elevator to go to the closing and the you know the old warlords in the thing with me asking me what i'm doing and i said oh well we're buying you know this property over there and i'm going to the closing i said how about you what are you up to he says oh i'm uh i'm going to the bank to to withdraw all my cash <laughs> and uh you know this is when things were so bleak that the idea of banks imminently failing was happening so i kind of pulled on my collar to get a little more breath of air and and we went on and closed it and times were completely terrible however that allowed for the opportunity that we knew that the market rate for retail space and it's a very high demand area very affluent area one of the best areas in southeast next to one of the top performing malls in the country we knew that we could rent space in this property as is if we could set the rates at half of what market was. And so our price allowed us to do things really cheaply. We could have built a parking deck on the property and, and park cars at a huge premium to what we were paying. So there was a big margin of safety in that. So that's sort of a recurring theme of figuring out how do you have a margin of safety? In this case, we knew we didn't have to do anything and we'd be Barring complete apocalyptic failure of the banking system and the financial system, we would be, our pricing was was going to hold. So we made the bet that there wasn't going to be a complete and utter collapse. Then as we got into it, we saw that, hey, yeah, yes, we can rent this stuff to B-grade folks at, at C-grade rents and, and be fine. But we started talking with some of the really fantastic merchants and restaurateurs and 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 people said, gosh, if you, if this was cool, you know, we'd be interested and we can pay X. And so if we thought, you know, if in an apocalyptic scenario, we could rent space for 20, people were telling us, gosh, if you did X, Y, and Z, you know, we'd pay you 60 or 70. And so then it was doing things on an incremental basis to say, we went out and attracted a couple of tenants on the idea that, hey, if you fix up the space and do this and that, we'll come in and we'll pay this. And so we were able to then go to our lender and come up with a method of financing a significant repositioning of the property based on doing things in an incremental way. And then we were able to show up and say, hey, if we do this, you know, we've got this handful of tenants and then we did that. We got some more money that led to the next handful of tenants. So it was, it was a, you know, a chicken and egg where we had a margin of safety to begin with. So we had a lot of options, but then by doing things in kind of an organic step-by-step -step way, it allowed us to attract additional, in that case, debt capital to finance 
you know, some pretty radical improvements. And in that case, I think the last lease that we did was at $100 a square foot when our initial underwriting was at $20 a square foot. And over the same time, cap rates, you know, just the market that we rode went from 6.5% to 4%. So that, you know, that was a case where that incremental sort of approach happened to work out. Had it not worked out, you know, a lot of that's, you know, was timing and fortune, but the having that margin of safety, I felt pretty good. We felt good that we could have weathered it out, you know, and, and been able to survive. What is, and I know this is situation by situation, but when a tenant says, if you do X, Y, and Z and make it quote unquote, cool, will come. What, what is cool? Spending lots of money on their space and saying unlimited TI, like what actually gets that cool factor and is a lot of this, you know, if, if I'm the first tenant in, is it all about kind of what you're willing to do for them? Or is there other things they're looking at that go, yeah, I don't mind being the, the first one in. Was there some characteristics you had maybe external to the building that mattered? But but like what's cool and what gets that first fish on the hook? Yeah, the so there's common themes that people are attracted to and for example in no particular order you know if you have indoor outdoor space and you've got trees that cast uh you know sort of a dappled shade on a sidewalk for example and if you've got flowers that are hanging at eye height and you've got hand-painted signs and you've got sidewalks that are wide enough and then little places to sit that are kind of off to the side. You can think of, you know, you can come up with a hundred little components like that, that make a physical aspect of a space that anyone that is universally appealing to people. You look at the great sort of people places, you know, around the country, around the world, they all have these similar aspects to them. So you start looking at, and and I would say we're, you know, largely students of of that kind of thing. So you can look at a dingy strip mall and say, hey, here's here's what you could, you know, here's some physical moves that could be made to that. And if those physical moves were made and you said, instead of Subway, if that was a groovy taco shop and and, and then that was Lululemon over there and then we had Jenny's ice cream here, you know, then you start to get a, start to see how the the merchants can kind of come together with the space and that thing plays itself out. So the trick is being able to, and, and I'm always amazed that, you know, you, you're dealing with some of the most creative people in the world, these, you know, restaurateurs and, and merchants. It's amazing how little they can envision something and what something could be, you know, you, you kind of tend to forget that's our business, not their business. So a critical part of that is being able to show someone in visceral terms, what this is going to look like and feel like and be like, and a B for them to believe you <laughs> 
and then C to convince them that they need to, based on those beliefs, they need to, they need to move. So it's a huge front end loading on the visual, telling the story with visuals, with video, with showing them other places, building a relationship where they trust you. Like, yeah, this is actually going to happen. I'm down. I get it. So that's a huge part of the battle is, is convincing someone that that can and will happen. And this is, this fits with what you're about. Yep. Is there anything you're doing, like just getting into pure numbers for a second? Are you structuring leases differently than your typical retailer? Like I'm, I'm speaking specifically to how y'all do it. Is, is there certain kind of things that matter in a lease maybe more early on with those tenants and the folks that are coming once the area is kind of proven like TI and percentage rent. I don't know anything that comes to mind. Yeah. So you, you've got a, you know, it's sort of the, the idea of, you know, you think about a, you know, a venture funded company, you've got a, you know, an age around a seed round and a B and C round. And so when you're looking for, you know, angel investing, you're you're willing to make a different deal than after you've reached unicorn status. So on a project that we're involved in now, you know, the first started leasing it, say, three years ago, and we were able to attract some of the, some really terrific local restaurateurs out of the gate, and they made deal, you know, rents that are, if they're not in the single digits, they're close to it. (laughs) And, and three years later, we're signing leases that are mid $40 range. So you, you, you think about that, that escalation, nothing's changed other than it's proven out. It's, it's more visible. It's more tangible. People are doing real business. You can see what it is. So the, each of those and we, and we had the ability to be able to do that. You know, a lot of these things are really hard. Somebody's building a building ground up all at once. They need $42 across the board. They need all their leases signed so they can show up to the bank and, and you know, get their financing. So having a structure that allows you to do things on the basis I described is, is critical. Or you just never get there. Yeah. I need to get in on one of your seed rounds. So just let me know when that <laughs> the next one comes out. Yeah. I'm going to call this little section of the conversation, stick to your guns. So you you kind of said it's your job to create the place that, that, you know, you forget it's not on the tenant, it's on you. So I'm picturing you kind of standing in these empty buildings or, you know, they're, they're starting to fill you kind of eyes closed. You see the pizza shop, you see the, the bar, you kind of see it all. How do you stick to your guns when, you know the pizza shop's supposed to go there, and I'm making a way exaggerated example, but Walgreens calls and says, I'll pay you way more than that pizza shop will ever pay you to be right there. How do you think through that? Because I, it's got to have a lot of patience. And, and do you run into those situations where you know who should go there, but who's at the door today is willing to pay more, but they're totally the wrong tenant? Yeah, that's, that happens all the time. And you, you want to punch yourself in the face and, (laughs) and you say no. (laughs) And now there are plenty of instances, you know, where, where there is no halo effect or you don't participate 
in the halo. And so, so then to make the Chase Bank ground lease deal, absolutely. <laughs> you know, that's the, they're going to, and you squeeze every last nickel out of them. And, <laughs> and that's the deal, you know, <laughs> but if you're participating, but, but you, you can sort of invert it and say, if I have the uh, groovy taco shop and the authentic sushi guy, that's going to do a lot more for these apartments desirability in this creative office space and the idea of doing a boutique hotel here. And if I plop that Walgreens in, I've lost all of those, you know? So you say, what's the, there's a benefit to doing that. If I'm looking solely within the project, if I'm looking at the halo effect, I can, you know, I can squash the whole thing. Then there are instances where the, and, and I think over time we'll see more of a movement towards this in certain areas that, you know, these, larger retailers can be very sophisticated and they can modify their offering. You know, speaking of Walgreens, they, they leased a space in downtown Atlanta where they, you know, rethought everything they did and went into an existing historic building and came up with one of their vintage old signs. And they've done a, you know, fantastic job of fitting in with the fabric of the neighborhood and it's a true asset. So there are times when you can, you know, with a lot of these folks are, there are instances where they're able to adapt to fit into this kind of an environment. Yep. When JP Morgan calls, you get every last <laughs> nickel. <laughs> and then turn it a little bit more. Yeah. And then crank it one more time. Somebody told me the other day, when JP Morgan takes you to a ball game, just remember you're taking JP Morgan to a ball game. <laughs> oh, all right. So you curate this masterpiece. And like when I think of property management and asset management, I think a lot of folks in real estate, it's, you know, collect rent, make sure that when the tenants call, you get your maintenance done. It's it's almost for a lot of folks, just try not to keep them. It's like the bare minimum to kind of keep everything going. But, you know, I've had the the gentleman on, a good friend of mine that runs Highland Park Village. When I hear of everything you've done and seen it, when I walk through these projects, I just see every little detail. And it's almost more of a hospitality management style than your typical quote unquote property management. So let's kind of like move into that a little bit. How do you manage this stuff? And and what are things that you're doing that when people think of property management, they don't think of what you're doing to kind of add to this whole mystique and halo effect? Well, yeah, you know, Highland Park Village is a great, you know, gold standard for for stewardship and taking what was already a terrific thing and and you know really raising the bar. So a terrific example of and they've done a great job of saying no. You know, I bet I bet 90% of his business is saying no. And I think a key thing when you're dealing with these independent businesses is understanding their business being knowing them well enough to know if they have you know gosh if they had a good weekend after the football game you know how was the you know knowing how their business operates on a day-to-day basis and having that sort of a rapport with them and the interesting thing about retail as opposed to other business types is the folks are actually making 
the, the space is integral to their livelihood. So if you're using office space, you can use any office space. It could be that building. It can be this building, you know, in, in you're renting an apartment. It can be that one. It can be this one. It can be across the street or around the corner. These in the retail world, it's very specific to the actual space that they're using. And so the relationships and how the, how they fit into the ecosystem is critical. So by having relationships and understanding how their folks are doing, you're able to keep a, understand the pulse and the health of the business. We have one of the, one of Atlanta's iconic dive bars as a tenant. And in the early stages of the pandemic, you know, this is at a time when all, when the corporate types went into full opportunism mode and the giant balance sheet mega retailers were withholding rent from everybody because they could. And, you know, the only reason people dealt with them in the past is because of the credit, the idea that if things got crazy, at least you'd get the money. And so they, it was just staggering about how they showed their true colors and, and just, I mean, it, you know, up and down the line, just stopped paying and gave a middle finger to the, to every landlord. And so, you know, knowing how things were, were progressing, we went to the, the fellow that owns this, this bar and said, you know, hey, man, I think I know things are rough. And uh, so what we'd like to do is, you know, not have you pay rent for the next three months and we can kind of figure out how this thing sorts itself out. He was closed. You know, there was a mandate that you had to, business had to be closed, et cetera. We didn't know what was going to happen, but we had a, we'd gotten a little leeway from, from our lenders. And so we went out and said, tried to get in front of him and said, Hey, you know, let's, why don't you not pay rent for the next three months? And, and know him well. And, uh, you know, he said, Hey, wow, thanks so much. Tell you what, you know, I've, I've always saved for a rainy day. And this is one of those rainy days. So I want to, I just soon go ahead and pay and that way we'll be even. <laughs> so, you know, that's an anecdotal story and a unique story. And there's plenty of jackasses in the world, but, but there are people like this that at the same time, some of these, you know, publicly traded mega retailers are not paying you when they A, have the ability B, they were a lot of them were open <laughs> and they were contractually obligated to. They opportunistically said no. And then, you know, this fella who's not open, we offered a, to let him uh, not pay rent. And, and he does the stand up thing and says, says, no, in fact, I'm, I'm fully prepared for this. So you think about that kind of a relationship the next time he calls and maybe there's a roof leak. <laughs> you know what I mean? Or there's been a problem with the trash guy banging around with the dumpsters coming a little, you know, coming at the wrong time and taking up a couple extra parking spaces. So in an ideal world, if you can start to have relationships with those kind of people like that, because you're, you know, we're in business with them, you know, like it or not. And so if you can have a relationship with them where you can have what I described, it's a powerful, powerful thing. Yep. We have 400 plus commercial tenants more now, but that's what we had in the pandemic. And like literally almost every single big corporate tenant were our problems. Tess, I mean, I won't, I won't go through them all, but 
Yeah, that's super interesting. When you think about, okay, the relationship, but then you think about the hand-painted signs and making sure the flowers are kind of coming off the wall right and that the lights are hitting right, it's all those tiny little details. The flowers are blooming. They're the right color. You know, the tables are situated the right way. The fire pit is always on at the right time. There's fresh logs that you can smell when you walk by. Who's doing all that stuff? Like who is staging and programming all that? Is that y'all? Is that a third party kind of hospitality manager? Like, I think it's so impressive when it's done right. And like, you know, even if it's off a little, it's off a lot. Yeah, I think those things happen on a sort of a, a key point of all this is those things happen on an iterative basis, an incremental basis, so that these properties morph over time and improvements continue to be made far after the initial delivery. So a lot of times when places feel sterile or dead, it was, you know, kind of built all at once. Here's the rendering, here's the plans, bing, bang, boom, it gets built and everybody moves on to the to the next thing because there's so many details that you could never ever account for in the early stages of doing stuff on a plan. It's only after living with it and you think about house that you've lived in and, and the little things that you've done over time. You know, if you've been in a place for for uh, an extended period of time and you think of the, the tiny modifications that you've made. So having the ability to, to add to and, and make these iterative incremental modifications is is key. And we're, you know, we're at a scale where, and that's the kind of thing that we see as a as a strategic advantage. You know, we're not dealing with hundreds of these things. You know, we're dealing with a handful of these things. So a lot of it's just walking around. That combined with you start to attract people like-minded folks, like-minded occupants. And so everybody's saying, hey, you know, so the ideas come from everywhere. You might have one on your own, but it might be, you know, we've got a contractor that we've dealt with for 20 years and he, he might have it. And we've got some designers that we've had equally long relationship with and they'll, you know, come up with a, you know, out of the blue, Hey, I was thinking, what if we did X, Y, or Z? You know? Yep. Do you walk the properties often? Do you have people that do it? Is it oh, all yeah. the above? Yeah. 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 It's like, oh shit, Eric's about to go walking. Here we go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Keep the sunglasses on. <laughs> we were talking about credit tenants. And I think what makes a lot of these things, from my perspective, kind of magical is that a lot of them are filled with kind of these local tenants. So let's just spend a second on it. One question that came up on Twitter was like, how do you justify the upfront TI for local tenants? And then after all the years of you doing this, can you usually spot when somebody, a, a local tenant that maybe doesn't have this long track record is going to be successful or if they're not? Yeah, great question. And I want to, you know, be clear. It's not, I don't want, I don't want it out there that we're like the SoftBank guy handing out buckets of yeah. cash to, to broke people. <laughs> uh, the, you uh, did say you have a seed round, though. <laughs> there you go. So over time, in each retail lease, you're often giving some amount of 
tenant improvements. So you think of the hundreds of years of, or hundreds of leases over the years, you know, these are like micro investments, maybe $20,000, you know, at the low end to half a million dollars at the high end. And you're, you're going to get paid back if the, you know, with the, with the small folks, if they make it, if they don't make it, you ain't getting it back. And so the reps of doing that and seeing where you've gotten smoked before, you tend not to touch that hot stove again over time. And so where we've, I would say most of our transactions are, we set up these, you know, properties where it's as is, where is, we'll give you the keys and you take it from there. And it's within, you know, we'll work with you to collaborate with you on how you build it out and what it looks like. But then there are certain instances where, you know, somebody's got, we've got a previous relationship with them. That's almost always the instigator. Or we've got a space that we know if we can make this space into X, that's going to be an all weather forever, fabulous space. And if this doesn't work, you know, because all, all retailers are, restaurants are on a march towards bankruptcy it's at some pace you know it's either <laughs> it's 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 coming it's just how long are they gonna make it till it does and are you gonna get paid back before they do but these buildings don't go away uh, or they've got a longer fuse on them so when we see instances of man we can create this fantastic you know restaurant space with the patio and this this whole thing and if these people don't make it We'll high five each other because we'll do even better the next time because now it's now it's built. And so so we'll a lot of times load up on in select instances where we're kind of creating a forever place. You know, you think about it, you know, at Highland Park Village where, um, you know, that little pass through where Mika Chin is, if there still are. And if, you know, if they were to leave, he'd be upset for about. Well, I guess it's his business, but if if the <laughs> restaurant were, were to leave, you know, they'd be sad for about five minutes and they'd have 10 others that would go in at a better rate. So don't shoot the messenger because I know that this, this is not true, but everybody blankets retail as just one thing. Retail's dead. Headlines love to say that, but I would say it's, we can't call all retail retail. And when you described kind of the, the Walmart jack-in-the-box Walgreens combo is like, yeah, that that gets me as excited as as burnt toast. <laughs> but there seems to be this like new revitalization. And, and so the, the question is, what do you say to people that say retail's dead? What is dead and what's not dead? And what's never going to be dead? I think the winners in that world, the transactions become you know, all the friction starts to go away from, you know, you, you think about how far Amazon's come of, I really hate Amazon. I hate everything Amazon stands for. And I still find myself, it's just so easy to push that button, you know, and the stuff shows up the next day. And so I'm a, I'm absolutely a, uh, a customer of it. And I'm in awe of what they've, what they've been able to build. People and don't look, get addicted to crack because it's good for them. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. So I think all the, a lot of the friction of transactions starts to go away. And then, you know, conversely, I was in a, um, I guess it was an office 
Depot the other day, and what a bluesy experience! Of it's you know, it looked like it was nineteen uh, seventies Russia. You know, half the half the shelves are empty, and <laughs> and it's you know, there's one sort of surly person at the front, and you know, it's a chore. It's your job. It's like you're the worker. You're the proletariat that's got to go in there and get your own stuff, bring it up. You know, you're doing the work for them. You've got to drag it out to your car and it's a you know pain in the ass to get there. And, and, you know, it's a it's a feel bad experience on every level. So I think people that are offering that sort of these self-serve warehouses where you do the work. It's just really I needed a uh, like a, a like a paper calendar. And for some reason, I decided to go in there, but I would never again do it once you could push a button and have the thing, you know, sent to you. So I think that kind of retailing where you've got the chore, it's a chore and it's up to you to do it over time, that friction goes away and it gets replaced with using physical spaces to create a connection between the brands and their customers. and. So, you know, companies like Walmart, I think, will be wildly successful, you know, competing against and you're already seeing it in, in how much ground they've made up with with Amazon, for example, of, of the frictionless environment that they're starting to offer and taking these this immense amount of real estate and converting it into, you know, a place that's easy for consumers and engaging and that sort of thing. So those places, so retail's going through a massive change. I think by most metrics, we've got a ton more space than any other country in the world on a per capita basis. So maybe that kind of thing starts to shrink. And the stuff that's left gets made way better because it's more useful. And I think the future is... You know, it's, it's one of the oldest industries in the world, so it's not going anywhere. It's going through a radical change, but I think we're going to, you know, the consumer is going to be the winner and it's going to be, it's going to be a radically improved environment where you actually enjoy the process of shopping and consuming because if you don't, they're out of business. All right. I probably should have started with this, but we've kind of gone through a lot of segments and, and, you know, how would you just describe you know, what your edge is at this point. I know there's like all these little pieces that it's like a big gigantic puzzle, the kind of stuff that you're doing, but why do you think you've just been able to make it really successful and continue to kind of quote unquote, have that touch? Is it because you failed a lot and you've just seen enough? Is it some, is this something you can only learn by getting punched in the mouth or is there some secret? Yeah, I, th- I think the stuff is imminently doable by anyone these are not proprietary none of this is proprietary like i said the these places are universally appreciated you go to you know you, you come back from europe and look at your picture roll and there's you know there's you know hand there'll be photos of you of, of your of your gang in, in front of a market but you know you're not taking pictures in front of your H-E-B, <laughs> you know what I mean? So there's, there's this, there, there's sort of this universal appreciation of these kind of places. And you just copy those, those patterns and forms 
And um, it's not like we're making it up. You know, these things have been sorted out years ago. But because of the way, you know, going back, it, it's a hell of a lot easier in certain instances, way more competitive, but it's but it can be easier to do that, you know, what a burger ground lease than to, you know, do what we're talking about. But I think the ability to to do the other is, is the edge. Being able to, you know, we probably just had more experience with others than most others. And we've, you know, spent a lot of time thinking about and looking at and, and, and building these kind of places and creating the relationships with the kind of occupants that use them and, and how, what, what they require. So maybe, so the edge of being able to orchestrate that kind of thing, bring it all together in maybe a more efficient way than somebody that's doing it the first time is probably the edge. Is this a scalable business model? Like, could you do this all over the country, assuming the real estate existed? Or is it one of those things that you kind of have to be walking it and feeling it and breathing it and living in it? Or is this something that you feel like you could do this in 10 different cities? And this question is more from because you're in Atlanta, would it work that way? Like, why can't more people do this? I think the way it scales is, yes, it, it, it can happen and, you know, it's it can and should happen everywhere. And the way it scales is, you know, I've, I've you know, met so many people recently through the platform of that have, that, you know, I've reached out, how do I do this? <laughs> you know, I've got this and it's, it's really amazing what, you know, this kind of stuff exists everywhere and we've got these <laughs> type a you know young carnivores on the retwitters that are out you know gobbling up the world looking for looking for this kind you know that have these opportunities and so i think the way that it scales is by teaming up with folks that can you know that that have the opportunity and have that see an opportunity in a given market and you know, because the themes are the same, the patterns are the same, the approach is the same. It's, you know, it's just simply being there and in a, in a having the opportunity in a given environment to do it. So, so I think the way it scales, it's like, you know, finding those people, you know, teaming up with them with a little bit of expertise, maybe a little bit of capital and, and in sort of the same way, like I could see it in, in a lot of the same way that the old Trammell Crow organization got scale of they had almost the sort of standalone businesses and you had a you had a central hub that was supplying you know capital and expertise to an extent but you had you had really smart local independent operators that were executing things yep all right we're going to move to the fun section i've enjoyed following you for lots of reasons but you're an incredible storyteller. So you got to tell us one like great story, but before that story, and I missed this, but I'm so intrigued and somebody asked it and I'm going to try and ask this the most politically correct way possible. They said, did the wife die? Something of that nature. Were you like, what happened there? And can you reveal the answer on the podcast? And then you have to (laughs) You have to leave everybody with just an amazing real estate story. This this episode couldn't be done if we didn't end it on that note. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
Well, that came from, uh, gosh, I'm trying, uh, I want to be careful what I say so I don't the, change the names and places enough to, uh, to stay out of trouble. But we had a property and a fellow was uh, interested in getting an easement through it and buying some of the property. And so he uh, had called and, you know, wanted to set up a meeting and he shows, he shows up at the office late and, you know, sort of an impeccably dressed older guy looked like central casting, like a, like a Senator with this slick back white hair and the expensive sport coat. And he was sweating profusely. And uh, he said, I'm sorry, I'm late. I said, well, that's no problem. He said, my, my, my wife was killed last night. And then he takes his finger and draws it across his neck and said, I walked in and her throat's cut completely open and there's blood everywhere. And, you know, my partner and I are like, what, you know, I don't, I don't think we need to meet, you know, I think we could have, could have postponed this. Anyway, he went into just, and, and I'll, you know, went into just extreme detail about what he found and how it happened. And, and we're just sitting there with our, you know, mouth hanging open. And then he said, uh, you know, but anyway, about that easement. <laughs> anyway, and then I so got the home. question was really, was he guilty or not? Well, I got home and there was a big thing on the news and he's, you know, they've got his picture on the news that he's a whatever person of interest. And anyway, so I think it never he ended up dying before anything sorted out, but there he was never convicted or, or I don't even know if he was charged with it. Um, Fair enough. But who knows? <laughs> All right. Leave us with a hanger. A hanger. Well, get. let's think of a topic. Okay. You gave me three topics before we started. Oh, I've got we one. Don't... I've got one. I've got one for you. <laughs> I've got a couple for you. So starting out, I had a terrific, what I thought was a terrific project when I first started. Had a friend in the industry and I, I needed some additional co-investment money to set up a set up a joint venture. So I needed some dough. And a good pal of mine and, and longtime partner still to the day said, Well, you should talk to my brother. He's a uh, he's in the raises money for hedge funds, et cetera, and he's he's great. He'd be happy to help you. And so I meet meet him and and great, fantastic guy. And so I, he was not involved in real estate, but was involved in the money business and had a, had a lot of dough. And so I said, here's the opportunity. He said, oh, this is great. And was sort of a early 30s and he's late 50s, early 60s, you know, knew his way around investments. And he says, man, this is terrific. I'd be interested in co-investing on the GP side with you. Terrific. I said, that's all I need. I've got a meeting with, there was a, a branch doesn't exist anymore, but a branch of branch of Goldman Sachs that was interested in maybe doing the big equity. He said, "Great." So we we flew to meet him, and you know this was this is it, man. This is my one of my first big co investment things, and I, I go out and I lay this thing, and I it's a fantastic, I, and I'm on, and I and I sell this thing as hard as I can sell it to these to these folks, and they sit around and they they start nodding their head. And, and they said, well, we like it. We like it. And uh, I think this is something that we can do. 
And I was thinking, oh, my God, this is unbelievable. I've got a, you know, institutional equity partner now. This is fantastic. They said, you know, the, this is great. And, you know, here's how our process works. And the only thing that we need to do is, is, some, uh, is some background checks. And uh, I'm like, great, no problem. And, and I'm, you know, under the <laughs> table, I'm doing like that Tiger Woods, you know, fist. <laughs> and then the, the guy I'm with goes, well, what do you mean by background checks? <laughs> I'm like my head jerks to the side, like, what the hell? And uh, they go, well, you know, we just, we just, you know, need to, he says, well, I, I have just to be up front, I, I have a felony on my record. <laughs> I'm, like, I'm, I'm just seeing like all my hopes and dreams, you know, collapse and, and, and slide through my fingers of this deal's dying. And I'm just looking at him like, how, what in the hell are you talking about? And he's, so he goes, you know, yeah, I, I uh, and he goes into this story. He says, I can tell you the story. And they're like, oh, please do. <laughs> like, oh my God. He goes into like a 30 minute story about how he went to, you know, he went to Cal Berkeley in the seventies and he, um, you know, ends up getting arrested on for these marijuana charges. And I'm like, this cannot be happening to me. (laughs) I was ready to get a check for, you know, I thought I'm walking out with a check for $20 million and this clown's now killed everything. (laughs) So anyway, it goes into great detail about the story. And then I'm just sitting there with my head hanging down and they go, oh, oh, well, that's no problem at all. We just want to, we just want to make sure you haven't done anything fraudulent. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so, I, you know, my head snaps back up. I'm like, is this for real? Yeah. We, and so anyway, they, they uh, anyway, everything ended up working out and they said, we appreciate the candor and uh, that's a great story. And we look forward to working with you. So. <laughs> I love it. Oh, I love it. That is so funny. Yeah. Um, All right. You said you got two. Let's get, let's hear the last one. Oh man. <laughs> I don't, it's, wait, is this on the air? You told me your goal is to get me kicked off the air. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think as you're, you know, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of what you've, been uh what you've created you know if you didn't have that gray hair it would the whole thing wouldn't even seem plausible that you've been able to do what you've done at such an early age and i was telling actually another longtime partner that you know about you and what you've been able to do and uh you know i said this cat's you know is creating this empire private equity empire and you know he's intent on you know, just from what I've read and what you've said of intent on building this, this, you know, huge team and everything. And he laughed and reminded me of a project where we went to, we had a name brand institutional private equity, one of the larger private equity companies, real estate private equity companies as a JV partner. You would, you would know the name, everybody on the call would know. Rhymes with Jack Moan or Jack Stone. <laughs> and we, he had a relationship with one of the founding members. And so we went to a meeting at the offices. And anyway, it was kind of an update as to how, what was going on with our project, et cetera. And we had a pleasant 
meeting and talk through that. And then there's all these people coming up to the conference room window. You can tell, you know, young Turks looking to get this fellow's attention because there was hundreds of pressing issues that required his attention. And they kept trying to get his attention and he kept waving them off as we, you know, had this meeting. Anyway, we go through that thing and you can just tell there's like all this stuff going on. All these people need to talk to him. And anyway, so we leave after our meeting and on the way out, stop at the <laughs> stop at the men's room. And so we're at the urinal and he, he walks in behind us and steps into one of the stalls that happens to be in the thing. He's, you know, has some comment like, great seeing you guys. And anyway, there's no shit. Two, not the right term, two, two fellas come up who are these young Turks that work with him and are standing with yellow pads outside the stall <laughs> asking him questions while he opines on they're going through the laundry list items of the day that he needed his approval or disapproval while he's sitting there responding to these things. So the and then, and then you know we we got to see the, see that whole thing unfold. So as your empire uh, builds, Chris, you can you can look forward to situations like that where you have uh, where you have groups of people following you in just to get your uh, just to get your input on items. That is the definition <laughs> of creative office. <laughs> It's we we rent it all, and so every space we're going to use. No, I love it. Meet me in the conference room, exactly. Man, I have so much respect for what you've done. I have not been vocal about it on Twitter. It's a kind of a prior life, but I at one point assembled ninety acres along the Trinity River here and almost rebuilt a city. And it took you ask why I have gray hair, thousands of apartment <laughs> units now, and. I never, I'll be honest with you, it, it, it's a labor of love. And I, th- like the difficulty to pull it off, I can feel it at my core. I'll be honest with you, I didn't have it. That just wasn't me. But I can like, I can feel it coming out of you. And in, 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 in our conversation, it can come off as a lot easier, but it's well, I think a monumental you've, you've, I think task. You've figured out, I think you've figured out something that's, that's worked pretty well. So It has. And, and I, I went the other way. What is the easiest thing that I, like I don't it. have to have the hand-painted signs? And the, the, but I, I learned that from something else. So this was awesome. It was better than I thought it would be. I look forward to meeting you in person sometime. I think we'll be in Atlanta in the next couple of years where we've got our eyes on it. I and if I come it. out there, I want to spend some time with you if, if you're available. Well, I'll and and likewise, and, and I'll do the same. And I'm watching from the uh, bleachers at, at what you're what you're doing and cheering you on, man. I think it's it's really fantastic. And and thanks for thanks for having me. Appreciate it, hey everyone. It's Chris here again. Thank you so much for joining me on this journey. If you enjoyed the show, please follow the show on Apple, Spotify, or subscribe on YouTube. Thanks again, and I'll see you on the next episode. Chris Powers is the founder and chairman of Fort Capital LP. All opinions from Chris and guests of the Fort podcast are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Fort Capital LP. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for real estate or investment decisions. The Fort with Chris Powers is produced by Straight Up Podcasts.